morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's our weekly privilege to gather together and to read about things that are gloriously true and to sing about those things, to talk about them with one another and to hear them preached. And Father, we praise you that all of these things have been true for us, that that they are our story. We thank you, Father, that these words that we've just sung in multiple songs of praise to you, that they're true of us, that Jesus has bought our forgiveness. And for that reason, we are no longer separated from you. We thank you now, Lord, that we have the opportunity to open our Bibles together and to consider Jesus demonstrating very clearly that he has the unique authority to to forgive sin. And Lord, as we consider these verses, we pray that you would grant us to remember that we are the beneficiaries of that authority. We pray, Lord, that you would move us to consider whether or not we have availed ourselves fully of the reconciliation that is ours in Christ. And if we have not, Lord, that we would gladly and eagerly pursue the full benefits of the forgiveness of Jesus. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. This morning we're beginning the the next section of Mark, which extends from 2.1 through 3.6. So if you just look at your Bible, look at 2.1, you may have to turn the page to look over to 3.6. That's a section in which Mark brings to us five controversy stories, five controversies where Jesus and since has some tension between himself and and some other folks and mark uses these stories to introduce the theme of tension between his kingdom and himself and a worldly kingdom and the religious leaders of this world and that tension is eventually going to bring about his own death that's one thing that mark does by putting these these controversies in front of us. A second thing that he does by by bringing these controversies to us is that he reveals some significant truths about Jesus' own identity. Now, those two things that, that Mark is doing are not unrelated because Jesus' identity is what causes the tension between him and these religious leaders. And there's an important thematic statement that's made right in the middle of this section. I'm not going to read it for you this morning, but if you'd like to read it later, it's in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. I'll go ahead and tell you exactly what that thematic statement means. Jesus is bringing something new with this kingdom that he's preaching. And if the old guard doesn't accept this new thing that Jesus is and does with his kingdom, there is going to be a big mess. Each one of these controversies is going to raise a question about Jesus. And as that question is answered, we are given a major revelation about the identity of Jesus. And that identity of Jesus is what heightens the tension of this section. Now, we want to begin with the first of these controversies this morning. And we find that in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. So, if you would stand with me. And we'll, we'll read these, these first 12 verses before considering them together. Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. You may be seated. I remember where I was on May 27th, 1995. May 27th, 1995. That date may not mean anything to you. You may not remember where you were that day. But I remember that date because that was the day that Superman became paralyzed. Some of you may remember this. Christopher Reeve, the original big screen Superman, was thrown from his horse in a riding accident, and he suffered a fracture of his second cervical vertebrae. And that, that caused a, a spinal cord injury, a severe spinal cord injury. That injury was a separation, interrupting communication from his head above and his body below, which led to complete inability of his, of his limbs to function. And when, when the nerve cells of the spinal cord are, are injured in that way or damaged, they can't divide and multiply. As amazing as the, the human body is in, in its healing, those particular cells, they can't regenerate. The malfunction becomes permanent. And so Christopher Reeve couldn't wash, clothe, feed, move himself. And then the man whom we all envisioned being able to leap a tall building in a single bound, he would for the rest of his life only ever move around in a motorized wheelchair. And so he became desperate, just absolutely desperate to fund research to answer one question. That question was, how do you restore that connection between the head and the body? He was desperate to figure that out. So that his body could once again flourish. Here in the story that we've just read, Jesus chooses the healing of a paralyzed man to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And I find that absolutely brilliant because sin separates. It separates God above from man below, resulting in a kind of malfunction of all mankind and it it created the fall created this perennial question how do you restore the connection between God and man so that man is able to flourish the way that he was designed to do we've seen in previous section that, that Jesus has unprecedented power and authority Now we're going to see that that authority extends to the authority to forgive sin. That's that's the major truth that Mark brings to us through this controversy. Sin separates, and Jesus is the answer to that question. How do you fix that separation between God and man? Jesus is the answer. He has the authority to forgive sins. The narrative here gets us to that place in five steps. The first step is a very quick one. And that step is that we have here at the very beginning a magnetic message. Jesus preaches the word. Jesus preaches the word and draws 
these needy people to himself. We, we find that again in verses 1 and 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So these, these verses, they just give us a bit of context for the rest of the story. Jesus is back in Capernaum, just like in chapter 1. And he, he has people flocking to him, just like in chapter 1. He's preaching the gospel, just like in chapter 1. And that gospel, just like in chapter 1, it is so magnetic that there is no room in the house where Jesus is teaching, not even at the door. Can't fit another person into that house. Which brings us to the second step. We find a desperate faith in play. A desperate faith. A desperate faith that says we must have Jesus. Desperate faith says we must have Jesus. Verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So in Jesus' day, there are no motorized wheelchairs. They carried this guy around on his bed. This group of people, one of whom is paralyzed, they're desperate to get to Jesus because, why? There's this man. There is no communication, no interaction, no relationship between his head and his body. He's, he's trapped, in a sense, in his own body. He's desperate to get near Jesus. And then think about how outrageous this scene is. Jesus is in this packed house. Likely you could hear a pin drop as, as Jesus is teaching. People are listening with rapt attention. And all of a sudden, someone and then some ones are walking on the roof. And then they're tearing through the roof. The, the text more literally says they unroofed the roof. They dug through this earthen, earthen roof. Now imagine right now if somebody starts jackhammering through this through this roof, what, what would happen? Well, I would stop preaching, and I would look, and you all would look, and we, we would just watch. And, and they just start lowering somebody down. I imagine that's what happened in, in this case too. Jesus even is watching this spectacle. This is desperation. This man is desperate to be freed from the imprisonment of his own body. His friends, out of love for him, they too are desperate to see him free. They're so desperate that they've hauled him, hauled his dead weight up on this roof and literally clawed their way through the roof thinking Jesus is in there. Jesus is the only hope. We have to get in there. We must. Social convention isn't even a remote consideration when somebody feels that kind of desperation. You know, there are some great pictures of faith in Mark, and this is one of them. If we, if we look at our, our Bibles, particularly at the very beginning, we might think of Adam as the original Superman. He, he had absolutely everything. He was perfect physically, perfect strength, perfect health. He had a perfect environment. He had perfect relationships between himself and, and I'm, I'm sorry, between God and, and man. Everything perfect. Then he fell. And sin caused a, a separation between him and his source of life, God. And, and then his entire world began to malfunction. And Genesis alone, just the book of Genesis, demonstrates the depth of that malfunction. And it indicates that Adam was not alone in that malfunction. Because he spread that to everyone who came after him. That spread even to you and me. Like Adam, we we're created only to flourish in fellowship with God, but because we emerged from the womb with hearts that stray from every good command of God, hearts that stray from God Himself, we also are separated from God. We're in this prison of sin. Because of that, we can only malfunction as human beings. The worst part of sin is that it causes a malfunction even in our wills, and affections so that we can't even want right things. We can't even want God. We're so spiritually paralyzed by sin that the Bible characterizes that condition as death. Our sin doesn't just separate us from God in this life, but it's so profoundly offensive to the holiness of God that our sin requires eternal separation from God 
in hell. Our sin stands as a record of wrongs condemning us to eternal death. And being spiritually paralyzed by that death and sin, there is nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We can't remove our stain of sin. And we can't even stop sinning from this day forward. We are absolutely helpless. But in addition to Genesis teaching the depth of our malfunction in sin, it also teaches God's plan and determination to address the separation caused by sin so that we can once again flourish in fellowship with Him. And Mark shows us that Jesus is the culmination of that plan and determination of God. Jesus came to free sinners from the power and penalty of sin by dying on the cross in the place of sinners and rising from the dead on the third day. Jesus is the hope for sinners. And someone whose eyes are opened to their dire situation, to this spiritual death that that is their existence on this earth, and whose eyes are opened to the hope that only Jesus provides, someone whose eyes are opened to those things, they will feel, feel a sense of tremendous desperation for Jesus. I must have him. I can't live in this death anymore. He is my only way. Without him, I am lost. And that reminds me of, of the Jews' response to Peter's preaching of Christ on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because upon hearing Peter preach, they, they say, or, or, or Peter, I'm sorry, Luke writes this in Acts chapter 2. He says, when they heard this, when they heard Peter preaching Christ, They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Just tell us what to do. And Peter responds this way. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus Christ is the answer to sin which separates you from God. So, these five men, they come. Four of them carrying the one desperate to get near Jesus. And then Mark gives us a third step. That third step is that there's this astounding pronouncement. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We we find this in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, That includes the faith of the paralytic. That tends to sometimes trip some folks up. See, Jesus isn't forgiving the paralytic on the basis of someone else's faith. Jesus sees his faith too. He's included in their. He sees their faith. He sees the paralytic faith. He sees all their faith. So we might wonder then, well, then why doesn't Jesus say, y'all's sins are forgiven, forgiven all your sins. Why, Why doesn't he say that? Because the paralytic is the one who needs to be healed. Paralytic is the one who needs to be healed. That may make us wonder, though, well, but Jesus didn't heal him. He, he forgave his sin. The reason that that puzzles us is because we as modern readers, we tend to disassociate sin from sickness. These original readers and the people present there when Jesus did this, Jesus' world, people then, they didn't make that disconnection. They assumed a connection between sin and sickness, and they were right to do that because the Bible does that. I want to give you, I want to give you a few references to that effect. You may want to write down and consider on your own time. Psalm 41, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 41, verses 3 and 4. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. For I have sinned against you. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Connection between sin and forgiveness. I'm sorry, sin and sickness. Second Chronicles 7.14. Second Chronicles 7.14. Many of you will remember this. Could, pro- could probably recite it with me. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will do what? Forgive their sin and... Heal their land. Forgive, 
heal, connection between sin and sickness. Those are just two from the Old Testament. There are way too many from the Old Testament for me to give you even a, even a smattering. It's just all over the Old Testament, a connection between sin and sickness. This is just a thing in the Bible. There's a connection between the two. Let me give you a few from the New Testament, though. Those of you who are, who are inclined to think, well, that was an Old Testament thing. Let me give you a few from the New Testament. We don't have time to read them. You can look at them in, on your own time. John 5.14. John 5.14. John 9, verses 1 and 2. John 9, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30. James 5, 16. James 5, 16. Now, that there is a connection between sin and sickness. Does that mean that when you are sick, or even if you are sick right now, that it necessarily means that that sickness is a direct result of sin in your life presently? No. And for that reason, I would encourage you to read John 9, which I just told you about and encouraged you to write down. Read that one because it will show you that not every time somebody is sick is it a a direct result of sin. But some sicknesses are a direct result of sin, and that's why James 5.16 is significant. So read James 5.16, and you'll see that, yes, there are times when sin is a direct I'm sorry, sickness is a direct result of sin. There is a connection between sin and sickness. And even in cases where sickness is not a direct result of sin, sin sickness is directly resulted, a, a direct result of sin broadly in that sin entered the world through the fall. And so let me give you another reference to that effect. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 8, 20 through 23. Our bodies break down and die because sin entered the world. So even if there isn't a sin in your life that, that is the reason for your particular illness, sin in general, because it entered the world, has caused all sickness. Now that connection between sin and sickness is a crucial part of this text. Without that connection... The argument that Jesus is going to make later in the text falls completely apart. He's talking nonsense if that connection isn't there. So we need it. We need to understand that. And these people watching and the original readers, they would have assumed it. They would not have been confused by this at all, that Jesus said your sins are forgiven. They would have understood immediately, well, Jesus is just addressing the root issue. Although he's doing it with unprecedented authority because he is himself pronouncing that this man is forgiven. We'll talk about that issue shortly. But suffice to say for the people present in the original reader, there's no conundrum here. So that is why Jesus said only to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Because he's the one who's there to be healed. And to be healed, he has to be forgiven. Everybody present understands that. Now, Jesus has just pronounced this man's sins forgiven. What? Exactly does that mean? Let me give you two more references for that. Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When God forgives, He removes that record of wrongs from before Him. Isaiah forty three twenty five is very similar. Isaiah 43.25 reads, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. To be forgiven by God is to have that record of wrongs canceled, blotted out. That record no longer stands against you. You're no longer condemned. You're no no longer liable for those infractions against the law of God. Now, we might wonder, how on earth is that possible if God is a just judge, if He punishes every evil that's ever committed? Well, we know that it's because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus suffered for those sins in our place on the cross. We might wonder then, well, then how is Jesus able to forgive this man before He suffered on the cross? Well, here's another New Testament reference for you to write down. Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Jesus extended to this man... A Romans 3.25 flavor of forgiveness. Jesus is forgiving this man on the basis of an atonement that he will accomplish on the cross. 
toward the end of the Gospel of Mark. So, this man's sin has been forgiven. What does that, what, what, what does that mean in terms of this man standing before God? It means that separation has been dealt with. There's no longer separation between him and God. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is inextricably tied to reconciliation. When we are forgiven, we're reconciled to God. And when we're reconciled to God, it's not that, all, that, that we become our own head, but rather we as the church, we now have Christ as our head, and we then flourish as we were designed to do to the extent that we walk in fellowship with our head. That's why Jesus taught in, in John 15, verses 1 through 5, saying things like, Abide in me, and I in you. Without me, you can do nothing. Some of us as believers, we'll, we accept the forgiveness of God. We're very thankful for it. Thank you for forgiving me for my sins, Jesus. We take that, we take that gift of forgiveness, but then we continue to live in what we might call functional separation. We, we don't take full advantage of that forgiveness by enjoying fellowship with God through Christ. That is, that there's no longer anything really separating us from God, but we don't intentionally engage in regular enjoyment of fellowship with Jesus by engaging with Him in the Word, taking our confessions and cares and praises to Him in prayer, by interacting with other members of His body in the church. So functionally, functionally, we, we, we are still cut off from Him, but now it's willfully. We, we, we do it to ourselves. And when that's the case, we still can't help but malfunction because... We only flourish to the extent that we walk in fellowship with our head. For a believer to to live in the reality of forgiveness is to live in fellowship with God in Christ. To walk with God as, as if it is true, because it is true, that that separation has been removed. Abiding in Him. Unless we abide in Him and He in us, we can do nothing. So Jesus forgave this man. It was definitive and final. Your sins are forgiven. Now, we may think that Jesus was going to say, okay, your, your sins are forgiven, and then just go on teaching and ignore, ignore the healing part. We have no reason to believe that that's the case. There's every reason to believe that Jesus was going to then move directly into healing him because Jesus never turns people away when they come to heal him, especially these people in Capernaum. This would have been a one-off if he had done that. Jesus always healed people who come to him for healing. What happens is, is that the, the scene is interrupted by an internal protest. There's an internal protest, and that protest is, hey, only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. We, we find it in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Who can do this but God alone? It's what they're, they're thinking. The scribes, they've already been mentioned, remember? You remember back in chapter 1, verse 22? We read this back there. And they, the people, were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, chapter 1, verse 22, that was in Capernaum. 2, 6, this is in Capernaum. So it must have been a little bit of an awkward situation. Because Jesus is teaching with the scribes sitting there, with all of this authority that all the people sitting around see as differentiating Jesus from the scribes who are sitting there. It's these scribes. These scribes. And now we're told what they were thinking. See, nobody else present is privy to what we read in verse 6. They were just thinking these things. Now, as the scribes, they are the Bible experts present. And so, as they're watching this whole thing happen, and then in particular, as they, they hear what Jesus says, they've got their Bible light bulbs going off. And so, so they're thinking, hey, wait, 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 wait. Daniel 9, 9, to Yahweh our God belongs forgiveness. And then Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions. He's putting himself in the place of God. That's blasphemy. He can't do that. And then when we read verse 6, 
we may have some Old Testament lights go off. We may be thinking Leviticus 24.16, whoever blasphemes the name must be put to death. Whoever blasphemes the name must be put to death. See, Mark, Mark is planting something here. He is forecasting Mark 14.64, where this charge of blasphemy is going to be brought against Jesus to condemn him to death. Only God can forgive sins. This guy can't do that. That's blasphemy. This is going to be brought up later as a charge against Jesus. A capital charge. Now, just a short caveat here about forgiveness. Obviously, we can forgive sins in a relational sense. We're commanded to all over the place in the Bible. And we're even explicitly told to model our forgiveness of one another on God's forgiveness of us in very specific ways. But in the ultimate sense of of removing a record of guilt unto eternal life, well, that's exclusively God's domain. We cannot remove the stain of sin. Only God can forgive in that sense. So verse 7 is crucial for the reader, crucial for the original reader, crucial for us. Only God can forgive sins. And so, are the scribes right? Is Jesus blaspheming? See, see Mark's pushing us to once again ask one of these three big questions that, that we've been asking since the beginning. We're asking these questions, remember, who is Jesus? Why did He come? What does it mean to follow Him? Mark's pushing us here to ask that first question. Who is Jesus? Only God can forgive sins. Who is, who is this guy? Well, Jesus doesn't leave it to our interpretation. The final step here is a definitive apologetic. Jesus gives a definitive apologetic, and that apologetic is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. You may not be familiar with the word apologetic. An apologetic is, is just a reasoned argument for truth. It's a reasoned argument for truth. That's what Jesus gives. He demonstrates that he has authority to forgive sin. So look with me at verse 8. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, imagine being in that crowded house or just outside the door and all, all you can just do is you, you can only hear what's going on. This whole thing has just taken place. They've lowered the guy through the ceiling. J- J- Jesus has pronounced this guy forgiven. The very next thing that happens in your perception, immediately after Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, the very next thing that happens is Jesus looks at the scribes and says, why are you thinking that? Now, it must have been a bit disconcerting for the scribes to have someone publicly read their minds and call them out for it. And so they know instantly that they're dealing with somebody who, this is not a normal man because he's right about what they're thinking. He's got them nailed. Now, let's think about what Jesus' apologetic is. Let's think through this. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, he doesn't say to do. He says to say. It, 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 is, it is more difficult to actually forgive sins. One must atone for those sins in order to remove. But he says, what's more difficult, to say or to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's, there's no way to verify that it's happened. You just, have to, you just have to take their word for it. It is more difficult to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, because that's instantly verifiable. If you say that and nothing happens, then you're immediately proved to be a fraud. And in that sense, it's, it is more difficult. When you, when you say, get up, paralytic, something better happen, or, or you're going to look pretty funny. And so what happens next proves this connection that we've already talked about between sin and sickness. Look, look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, 
Jesus is not just making an argument. Look, if I can do, if I can do something hard, then I can do an unrelated easy thing. That's not the argument that he's making at all. For, for example, if, if I came to you and said, which is easier, to say I can do long division in my head or to say I can ice skate? But so that you may know that I can do long division in my head, watch this, and I start to ice skate. What would you say? Say, well, it doesn't actually follow because those two things are not related. This, this argument that Jesus makes only works if those two things are connected. Without the connection between sin and sickness, what Jesus does next, healing the paralytic, it just proves He can heal paralytics or, or lesser illnesses. But because there is this biblical connection between sin and sickness, when He heals the paralytic, He proves that His pronouncement of forgiveness dealing with the root issue back in verse 5, actually happened. The man actually was forgiven, making possible the healing of the paralysis. So the healing of that outward condition has proven Jesus' authority to address the inner condition, which is sin. If He heals the disease, then He has also forgiven the sin. And for that reason, when the man gets up, picks up his bed, and walks out, They were all amazed and glorified. They were not just amazed because the man was healed. Listen, again, this is Capernaum. Jesus has been doing this kind of thing over and over. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen Him cast out demons. It's getting a bit rote by this point. It's not not amazing anymore. They're still coming to Him to have Him do these things. But but this is not so amazing that that, that they're going to be blown away. What has blown them away is is that He has just proven by argument and action that He has authority to forgive sin. And they glorify God because they recognize now this this whole thing is a work of God. And so when we think back to that question, are the scribes right? Is Jesus blaspheming? The answer to that obviously is no. Because you do not glorify God when someone blasphemes. You glorify God when God does something magnificent. Jesus has explicitly argued that He has authority to forgive sin. But because of what the scribes noted back in verse 7, which is that only God can forgive sin, Jesus has implicitly argued that He is God. Jesus is God who has authority to forgive sin. As we start to wind down here, I want to close by addressing two groups of people. Our world currently would like to convince us that all of society is divided into two groups. And those groups are the oppressed and the oppressors. And they're, they're, they're actually right on one point. All society is divided into two groups, but those two groups are those dead in their trespasses and sins and those alive in Christ. And those are the two groups that I'd like to address here as we close. First of all, to that first group, those who have never, never repented, never turned away from their sin and come to Jesus in faith for the forgiveness of their sins so that they might have life in Him. To to you, I would say, please know that there is hope and help in no one but Jesus. Only God can forgive sins. And the sins that you still have on your account, they condemn you before God. You are liable to the eternal fire for that sin. And, and all of the, the malfunctioning in your life right now that, 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 that you, you were aware of even before you walked in this morning... All of that malfunctioning in your life, that is because of your separation from God. The separation that you have from God right now, consequences of that in terms of your your present malfunction, that pales compared to the separation that you'll experience on the other side of, of this life. Only Jesus provides the forgiveness that you need in order to be reconciled 
to God, in order to have eternal life, in order to function eternally as you were created to function. And so please, surrender your life to Jesus today. If you have any questions about that, I would be happy to talk to you. The other elders would be happy to talk to you. You're sitting around people. This room is filled with people who love talking about the things that we're talking about this morning. But just don't leave here this morning if you have questions about what I've just said. The other group, let me, let me talk to the other group, those who are alive in Christ, those who have repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. A moment ago I mentioned one reason why many believers continue to walk in malfunction, and that is that they live functionally separated from God. That is, they, they just they don't take advantage of, full advantage of the forgiveness that they have in Jesus. They, they don't intentionally walk in fellowship with Him. They don't abide in Christ and for that reason, they, they, they tend to continue to have troubles that they, they don't necessarily need to have. There's another way, a second way that believers can continue to malfunction. I, I fear that those who follow Christ tend to revert to a wrong way of thinking about Jesus and sin and forgiveness. It's actually the way of thinking that's, that's common to unbelievers. And that way of thinking is this. We, we will sin and then think, I've got to clean up this mess before I can face Jesus. Before I can go to Jesus. Now let me be very clear here. The New Testament obviously and repeatedly calls us to strive for holiness. But it calls us to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, in close fellowship with Jesus, with a clear conscience. The New Testament does not call us to strive for holiness in a kind of self-cleansing pre-Jesus, before facing Jesus, before coming to Jesus. But many of us try to do that, that very thing. We, we, we struggle with a pattern of sin. Maybe it's ungodly thoughts or uh, uh, an ungodly pattern of speech. Whatever it is, and we... we we realize that we are, we are guilty of, of that sin, the enemy would then take that and lead us into a, a, a spiritual paralysis of sorts, self-condemnation. And, and we, we think, man, I can't go back to Jesus because I've confessed that sin before and he can't help but be mad at me because I've, I've confessed this over and over and over and I keep doing it again and again. Who am I to go crawling back to Jesus I've got to scrub my mind clean before I can go back to Him. I've got to kill this ungodly speech before I can dare to use my tongue to speak to Him and ask for His forgiveness. I've got to show Him how sorry I am before I do that. I've got to do, 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 before, before, before. And perhaps even in in a well-meaning attempt to please Jesus, we find ourselves in a Christless struggle against sin, waiting to confess, waiting to seek forgiveness, waiting to look to Him for help until we have made ourselves presentable. Well, listen to the good news of this text. It is written to you. Jesus says to you, I have authority to forgive sins. And this Jesus says to you, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. See, it's not, it isn't just the lost who are welcome at the cross. It, it isn't just the lost who find rest in Jesus. The good news is not just that, okay, come to Jesus as a lost person and He'll scrub your record clean, but from conversion forward, you keep yourself clean. No! 1 John 1.9 is true for you, believer. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And we ought not fear that 1 John 1, 9 then is going to become for us some kind of license then to sin. It isn't because the same apostle that wrote 1 John 1, 9, two verses later wrote this. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not that He was. He is the propitiation for our sins. So, believer, saint, when you sin, run to Jesus. Don't run from Him. Run to Jesus. This is precisely the gig He signed up for. He is the God who has the authority to forgive sins. Run to Him in faith. Run to Him in faith for forgiveness. And then, in the joy of a cleansed conscience and in the power of the Holy Spirit, strive for holiness. Not before. Not, not before Jesus. But some of you may be thinking right now, I get all that. Greg, I get it. I know. I know that Jesus will forgive me because he's forgiven me many times before. I, I don't doubt that he will. But this, it, it, it's this pattern of sin that's enslaving me. What, what, what I'm afraid of is that once he forgives me, I won't be able to walk afterwards. I'm afraid that he's just going for, to forgive me and I'm just going to go back and I'm going to do that same sin again. That's what I'm afraid of. And that's why I don't come. Let me say two things to that. First of all, do not let that fear prevent you from confessing and seeking forgiveness from Jesus because a guilty conscience will only contribute to continued malfunction. It is only going to make things worse. It is only going to contribute to a greater perceived wall between you and the Lord. You've got to run to Him when you sin. Run to Him. He's eager to forgive you again. He told Peter to forgive 70 times 7. He's eager to forgive you. Eager. Do not let that be the reason that you don't run to Him. But secondly, just as surely as Jesus forgives sin, He tells people, get up and walk, and they do it. Just as surely as Jesus forgives sin, He frees people from its power. He forgives sin and then causes them to walk in faithfulness. Now, if you have struggled with a particular life-dominating sin for a while, it may be that you just have not availed yourselves of all of the resources that God provides for us in the body of Christ. Now, what am I talking about? It may be that you need someone in the body of Christ come alongside you as the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to help you walk in faithfulness. Maybe you've you've been in the Bible and you've, you've been praying. You've been doing those couple of things. Jesus has called this body of believers to be His hands, His feet, His voice in your life to help you overcome that life-dominating sin. And we have some folks in this, in this church who are specially trained to do that kind of thing. We have a biblical counseling team. And I'm telling you, do not let that word counseling make you think, oh, I don't want to be a special case. Because we all need counseling from time to time, all of us. We all need it. And we have got scads of folks in this con- congregation who have been helped by counseling from time to time. And they will tell you, I'm so glad I asked for help because I got that help. Christ helped me through His hands and feet and voice in this congregation. So if you're, if you're dealing with that kind of sin, if you're dealing with that kind of struggle, and you don't know what to do, first of all, you come to Jesus, you confess that sin, seek His forgiveness, and then say to, to one of His hands, His feet, His voice in this congregation, I need help. I oversee the counseling ministry at this church Ask me, send me an email, call me, grab me after this service, say, I need some help. I will connect you with one of our biblical counselors. Get that help that you need. There is zero shame in it. There is no issue outside the bonds of Jesus' ability to help you. 
This church is His body, is His hands reaching out to help you, to ask for help. But don't run from Jesus. He has authority to forgive sins and to help you walk in faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that it is true that there is, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is only Jesus. We, we praise you, Father, that, that we have found that forgiveness in Christ. We pray for those who may be present this morning who have not been forgiven because they have yet to repent and turn from their sins. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them the grace of seeing their dire situation, seeing that Jesus is their only hope. We pray, Father, that you would move them to repent and trust in him. We thank you, Lord, that you are so kind as to continue to forgive and forgive and forgive. And we we ask, Lord, that you would give us such a, a clear picture of and love for the forgiving heart of Jesus that when we sin, we would run to him and openly confess to him, knowing that he will gladly forgive us because he is the one who has authority to forgive sin. Pray, Father, that you would shield us, protect us from the lies of the enemy who would tell us otherwise. We pray, Father, for those present among us who may be given over, who've given themselves over to a life-dominating sin, and perhaps the enemy is telling them right now that they can handle that sin on their own. I pray, Father, that you would disabuse them of that lie, move them, Father, to ask for help, and that having received help from your body, they would be freed. Pray, Father, that everyone in this local congregation would be like this, this paralytic, forgiven and walking in faithfulness, gladly preaching the name of Jesus. We ask these things in his name.